to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Compounding Conundrums, where we sit down with sterile compounding experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. This is the third episode of a three-part series that is being produced by members of the ASHP section of Inpatient Care Practitioners Advisory Group on Compounding Practice. My name is Kaylee Thompson, and I'm the Operations Manager at Arkansas Children's Northwest in Springdale, Arkansas. Again, I'm fortunate to be joined by three wonderful colleagues that lead some aspects of compounding operations throughout the country and are also members of the section advisory group. Joining me today is Kevin Hansen, who is the director of 503B programs at Premier, Terry Larilla, who is the home care pharmacy manager at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and Jim Lund, the immediate past chair of the SAG on compounding practice and senior director in the hospitals and health systems division at Vissant Consulting. Thank you all for joining me again in the third part of our podcast series. We have previously discussed the basic definitions of compounding and how compounding is distinguished from 503A and 503B facilities according to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, as well as the determination of beyond-use states. Today, we're going to focus on one of the most significant changes between the currently enforceable version and the upcoming version, the change from low, medium, and high-risk compounding to Category 1, 2, and 3, and how this impacts BUD. So to get us started, Jim, can you kind of describe why the change from low, medium, and high to category one, two, three, and how does this change relate to updated BUDs? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Kaylee, and, and glad to be here with everybody again. So there's actually a really great FAQ document from USP that's out there, and this question came up, and, and they kind of outlined it. I'll try to cover the best I can, you know, how they outline this um, to maintain accuracy here. But the, the categories were revised to avoid inaccurately conferring a level of risk to a particular CSP without considering all factors that influence the quality of that CSP. So updating the, the CSP categories to category one and two, uh, which are distinguished primarily by the conditions under which they are made and the time within which they are used, is intended to be a neutral designation. Category three describes CSPs made in a compounding facility that meets additional quality assurance requirements. So category one, two, and three CSPs are distinguished primarily based on the states of environmental control under which they are compounded, uh, the probability for microbial growth during the time they will be stored, and the time period um, within which they will be used or must be used. Table 12, 13, and 14 for category 1, 2, and 3, respectively, of the revised version provides the updated BUDs based on these revised considerations. And the BUD limits are based on several considerations, such as the minimum time periods necessary to perform required tests, uh, CSP chemical and physical stability, the potential for microbial proliferation, the exponential growth rate of microorganisms with increasing temperatures, and the risk of microbial contamination or not achieving and maintaining sterility despite implementation of the requirements of the chapter. The BUD limits are also based on the diversity of practice settings, the environments, processes, raw materials used, and analytical approaches that folks may use. Great. Thanks so much, Jim, for that explanation. 
it's important to keep in mind that the updates to the BUDs in the revised chapter are based on multiple factors and must be viewed in totality. So let's get started with discussing Category 1 CSPs. Terry, can you describe the chapter's guidance on environmental controls and BUDs for Category 1 compounding? Thank you, Kaylee. As stated, we reviewed immediate use compounding during the last Compounding Conundrums podcast. Immediate use CSPs are given a four-hour BUD time. The next step in compounding complexity goes to those newly defined categories of CSPs. When assigning a BUD based on category, we need to be conservative while looking at stability and sterility concerns. Stability is both chemical and physical. We need to look at the container closure system and make sure that it is compatible so that there's no leaching, interaction, or absorption problems. The primary factors used in assigning a category of CSP and resultant BUDs are the conditions of the environment in which that CSP is prepared, the aseptic processes and sterilization methods, the starting components, whether sterile or non-sterile ingredients, whether sterility testing is performed, as well as the storage conditions of that CSP. I will now look at Category 1 CSPs, not including hazardous drugs. The minimum for Category 1 is an ISO 5 PEC or hood. The hood is then placed in a more controlled area, but that area is not classified. The PEC could either be a horizontal flow hood, a biological safety cabinet, a RABS, CAI, compounding aseptic isolator, or even a pharmaceutical isolator. This ISO 5 PEC is then placed in a segregated compounding area, or SCA. This could be a physical room that surrounds the PEC or an area that has a visible perimeter. Think about segregated areas. It should not have unsealed windows around it. It should be out of human traffic flow, as well as from environmental control challenges like restrooms, warehouses, or food preparation areas. The beyond use state limits for category one CSP are 12 hours or less at room temperature after preparation, or if refrigerated between two and eight degrees Celsius, it can be assigned a 24 hour or less BUD. Now, if you're making a CSP in a clean room suite, with an ISO 5 PEC and that clean room suite loses its state of environmental control, then those potential category two CSPs should be treated as a category one so that the BUDs default back to that 12 hours or less room temperature or the 24 hours or less refrigerated temperature. Thank you for that, Terry. You did mention the loss of environmental control. Can you describe what types of loss of environmental control would actually indicate the downgrading from a Category 2 to a Category 1? Thank you for the question. You can lose environmental control by loss of HVAC pressure differentials between the rooms, loss of temperature control, 
excessive particle counts, like a hole in the ceiling, HEPA filter, or even microbiological air or surface counts above threshold. But these all need to be evaluated contextually, looking at the situation, time duration, and circumstances. An extreme situation would be where the HVAC system goes out and it's 90 degrees in the clean room with 95% humidity, moisture is condensing on the clean room side of the windows. Clearly, that is not environmental control. So when category two is in doubt, the best default are those category one BUDs. Oh, yes, that would be an extreme situation. But thank you, Terry. The question often comes up as to what is deemed a loss of environmental control. And I think your answer really focuses on the fact that for the chapter, you know, each facility must define that and have written policies and procedures to follow if this occurs. So moving on, Jim, one of the differences between category one and two compounding are the environmental controls that are required for category two. For the chapter, category two compounds must be compounded in a clean room suite, which immediately tells us that category two compounds will be allowed longer BUD just based on environmental controls. Can you describe the BUD limits for category two CSPs for us? Yeah, absolutely, Kaylee. All the BUD limits for category two CSPs are outlined in table 13 of the new chapter. If you review table 13, you'll see the first decision point in the BUD table is whether the CSPs are terminally sterilized. I'll touch on that in a moment, but let's assume most sites are not in the business of terminal sterilization. So for these aseptically prepared CSPs, the next question is whether sterility testing has been performed. If sterility testing has not been performed, then you're dealing with two sets of BUDs, depending on whether your source products were all sterile products to begin with, or if you used a non-sterile starting component, such as in non-sterile to sterile compounding. If you used a non-sterile starting component, then you've got a simple one-day BUD for room temperature, a four-day BUD for refrigerated storage. If you choose to freeze these products, you can continue to apply the 45-day BUD, which should be familiar from the currently enforceable chapter. If you did not use any non-sterile starting components, so all of your starting components are sterile, say they're traditional vials that you're using, then your BUDs will be four days room temperature and 10 days under refrigerated storage. And again, if you choose to freeze these, you can apply the 45-day BUD for frozen storage. I tend to think of this scenario um, to be the most applicable to your traditional hospital sterile compounding clean room that's making patient-specific CSPs. So in this traditional workflow, we don't have a lot of luxury of time on our side uh, to perform sterility tests as these products are typically prepared and sent to a patient care area for administration the same day. So again, if the hospital IV room is using all sterile source products, then the BUD applied to these products would be four days at room temperature and 10 days refrigerated. So comparing that to the currently enforceable chapter, most of the patient-specific products being made in your hospital clean room must apply a 48-hour or a 30-hour BUD for room temperature storage, depending on whether it's low or medium risk, respectively. So one piece of good news here is for this traditional hospital-based clean room scenario, the BUDs that will be applied will be a bit longer under the new standards in the new chapter. Now, if we back up to sterility testing, if you have performed sterility testing and the product has passed the sterility test, then there's an opportunity to extend that BUD range. And in this scenario, you can apply a 30-day room temperature or a 45-day refrigerated temperature 
And then your frozen time is also extended to 60 days. So I think that probably covers the most common scenarios that we would encounter as hospital pharmacists. As I mentioned previously, if there are sites that choose to terminally sterilize their CSPs, then there is again an opportunity to extend the BUD further. And similar to what we outlined above, there are really two scenarios that exist here depending on whether sterility testing has been performed or not. So if a site terminally sterilizes the CSP, but does not perform sterility testing, then the BUDs for that product become 14 days room temperature and 28 days refrigerated. If these products are frozen, again, they remain with that 45-day BUD. Now, if a CSP is terminally sterilized and the site also has a sterility test performed and the product passes the sterility test, this is where you'll see the longest BUDs that can be applied to category two CSP. And in this scenario, the room temperature BUD jumps to 45 days and the refrigerated BUD increases to 60 days. And then the longest BUD example is the terminally sterilized, sterility tested, frozen CSP, which can apply a 90 day BUD. Thank you, Jim. Sterility testing does offer the attractive potential to extend BUDs but for sites that have not explored this previously, what guidance can you give for sterility testing if a facility wanted to pursue this path? Good question, Kaylee. So for any BUD that requires sterility testing, whether it's category two or category three, the testing must be performed according to the standards outlined in USP chapter 71, which is the chapter dedicated to sterility testing. An alternative sterility method is allowed as long as the method is validated and is considered non-inferior to the requirements outlined in 71. And there is a separate USP chapter, it's chapter 1223, that's specific to validation of alternative microbiological methods um, that would need to be understood to determine whether your alternative method is valid. A few things I'll mention related to chapter 71, uh, obviously it's its own chapter and there's a lot of content there, but some key components of that chapter related to this question is that first there's outline around the quantity to be tested. And within chapter 71, there's a table, um, table two, that outlines the minimum quantity of products from a batch that must be tested. And this is dependent on the overall batch size. One important piece of information to highlight here um, from the new chapter 797 is that 797 specifically states that the maximum batch size for all CSPs requiring sterility testing must be limited to 250 final yield units. Additionally, uh, for any sterility test performed according to 71, a method suitability test must also be com completed. And this is a test that is performed to confirm that the contamination can actually be recovered. Basically, it ensures that your sterility test is capable of detecting any contamination. And again, this just kind of ensures that someone doesn't think, oh, I can just take a Petri dish from the lab put some of this sterile product on there and see if it grows anything. We do need to ensure that the method works and that it's actually going to detect appropriately that there is contamination. And then also uh, one important consideration is, is to make sure that there is a process for resulting failures in your sterility tests. And this is where your facility CAPA process comes into play to investigate and correct these issues. So any sterility test that results in a failure must promptly lead to an investigation into the possible causes for the failure, including identification of microorganisms, as well as an evaluation of the testing procedure, the compounding facility in the environment, the process or the personnel involved that may have contributed to the failure. 
And if the source of contamination is identified, it must be corrected and it must be determined if those conditions causing the failure could have affected other CSPs. All of this, the investigation, the corrective action steps, including recalls if applicable, this all must be documented in your capital process. Uh, that's great, Jim. I, I think that's very good, good information for facilities that would want to pursue sterility testing. Now, previously, you had also mentioned terminal sterilization, providing the longest BUDs. I think many of us might be familiar with a filtering, consider, you know, filtering process for terminal sterilization. But what does the chapter say to this and how would this um, actually be achieved according to the chapter? Um, that's a good question and a good point of consideration. Um, I think it's important to understand what qualifies as terminal sterilization, what does not. So first, and this may be obvious, but terminal sterilization occurs in the final sealed containers. It's nothing prior to that. It's once the final product is in its final container, that's when the sterilization occurs. And within Chapter 797, it's clearly stated that sterilization by filtration is not considered terminal sterilization. There's really three methods of terminal sterilization that are outlined as acceptable methods within the chapter, and that would be steam, dry heat, and irradiation. And the method used must ensure that the CSP is sterilized without degrading the actual physical or chemical stability of the product, so the, the strength, concentration, the purity of the product itself, and it must not degrade the packaging integrity of that final product container. Additionally, the method selected must achieve a probability of a non-sterile unit of 10 to the negative six. So in other words, the probability that one unit in a million is non-sterile. The probability of a non-sterile unit, if you look in the chapter, you'll see the abbreviated PNSU is, is also sometimes referred to as the sterility assurance level. Section 10 of the new chapter 797 contains about two pages of information on sterilization and depyrogenation in great detail. So I won't go through all the exact details of each method, but this section of the chapter outlines for each method what the requirements are. Um, it outlines when each method may be appropriate, the method or the requirements to achieve sterility, for example, temperature requirements, pressure requirements, and time requirements if applicable. Um, and it also provides some insight on how to validate the effectiveness of the process by using biological indicators, for example. A critical element to keep in mind here is the absolute necessity to have all of this outlined in your site's standard operating procedures. So any terminal sterilization process you decide to implement in your practice, you must have an SOP that defines the terminal sterilization process and procedures, including the necessary temperature, pressure, uh, duration, load conditions for each process cycle, and the use of biological indicators to, to verify the sterilization process. Additionally, the SOP must include a schedule and a method for establishing and verifying the effectiveness of the process, as well as methods for maintaining and cleaning the equipment used. And then lastly, the SOP must also include training and competency of your staff on these methods and the equipment. Additionally, you'll see in the chapter in 797 multiple references to chapter 1229, which is USP's chapter on sterilization of compendial articles. And as one might expect, this chapter goes into great detail on all the approved sterilization methods, their respective requirements. If terminal sterilization is something that one is considering to achieve those longer BUDs, becoming you know best friends with chapter 1229 would be highly recommended as well. Thank you, Jim, for that overview. Last but not least is the newly defined Category 3 compounding. 
Kevin, could you please give us a brief overview of this category before we get into some of the specific requirements? Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad to. So I think it'll be important as we think about where did this ominous category three come from, right? So if we look back of you know early revisions of, of 797, we just had a category one and we had a category two, and we did not have that category three. So through the public comments, there was definitely a lot of things that had come through um, about the need for extended beyond use states, right? The, the proverbial extended BUD. And uh, that was the impetus really for the creation of this category three. So when we think about extended BUDs, we can now, you know, translate this in our minds to this newly minted category three that we see in our revised USP 797. So there's obviously several different requirements and conditions and things that compounders need to meet and the environment needs to be set to be able to get these longer beyond use states. But certainly if that's uh, desired by the compounder, making sure that they're compliant with the outline of the section will allow those longer beyond use states, even up to a maximum of 180 days under um, certain conditions. So that's just a, a quick brief background about the intent of category three, and um, um, certainly would be happy to take more questions on that. Perfect. Um, yes, thank you. So can you describe the potential need for extended BUDs and where that fits into practice and maybe also what facilities must consider in order to comply with the chapter requirements for Category 3? Yeah, absolutely. So really, we think about different operational reasons of why, let's say, within a health system, a extended or longer beyond use state than what's permissible within either Category 1 or Category 2 would be, would be needed. And so we think about, you know, some of these drugs that we put into our um, anesthesia dispensing cabinets, as an example, of you know needing room temperature storage, and they're drugs that are when they're needed, they're needed urgently, and maybe cannot wait on you know a compound to come from the pharmacy or even a provider to put that together. So having this long room temp shelf life can be very advantageous in uh, certainly the operating room, as as just an example. However, you know, we think you know, we look at all of the requirements of category three, we can see that they're quite extensive and they're quite extensive because uh, be, uh, extended beyond use states comes with additional risks. Right. So since these extended BUD CSPs are going to be held for a longer period of time before administration to those patients, the potential for harm uh, is potentially increased, right? If we know that we contaminate that, that preparation and, you know, keep it at room temp for up to, let's say, 90 days, that gives a lot of opportunity for that those microbes to, uh, to grow and to really cause harm or even death to a patient. And so there has to be additional quality assurance and there has to be additional quality control. And that's what we see within uh, the Category 3 requirements is, is exactly that. And so if this is something that folks are interested and you really got to start by thinking about the environment that you're preparing these in, right? So each of the categories, category one, two, and three is rooted in the environment. And so the category three environment, of course, is your, your clean room suite, similar to category two, but there's enhanced requirements for that area. And so we're going to be focusing really on that of the buffer room, right, for where category three um, occurs. You certainly could have a shared anterior between a category two and a category three operation. So let's talk about the category three buffer room. 
So even for the personnel that are within there, they need to use sterile garb. They can't reuse the garb. They can have no skin or hair exposure within that buffer room. They need more frequent garbing, fingertip and media fill testing, um, uh, even you know after every three months for these types of personnel. For the environment, there's going to be more frequent surface sampling. So that's going to be at the conclusion of each batch and weekly within the environment. Uh, we have more frequent air sampling on a monthly basis. And then uh, lastly, is about more frequent sporocidal cleaning, which will be weekly in most areas. So that's really the personnel and environmental requirements for category three. However, we did talk about the risks of the preparation. So there also has to be preparation considerations for these longer BNU states. So there's some testing of the CSP that needs to be done once per formulation and container uh, closure system. So first and foremost is you need a stability indicating method study, right? It can't just be a potency over time. It needs to be stability indicating. It needs to be able to separate the active you know, ingredient and, and the excipients from those degradation products. And so you need to have a stability indicating method study. If it's an injection, you need to have particulate matter either for injections, which is USP 788 or ophthalmic solutions, which is uh, 789. And then that container closure integrity test, which is USP 1207. So that is the times one testing if there's no changes. Every batch needs testing, and that needs to be the sterility test, which can be USB 71 or a validated alternative method that we see in USB 1223. And then if you're using any non-sterile starting ingredients or components, we also need to do an endotoxin with that of USB 85. And last but not least, and, and even similar to category two, the chapter does require that any Beyond use states that require sterility testing, so that would be all of the CSPs made in Category 3, it does have a maximum batch size of 250 units. And really, that was driven from some of just the inherent limitations of the sterility test and thinking about differentiation of our environmental controls within a 503A practice setting compared to a 503B or even a manufacturing um, practice settings. So when all of that is said and done, if we're using uh, only aseptically prepared compounding method, we can have up to 60 days room temperature, 90 days refrigerated, or 120 days frozen. And if we're terminally sterilizing a category three a CESP, we can go up to 90 days room temp, 120 days refrigerated, and 180 days in the freezer. Thank you, Kevin. That is a, a lot to, to process. And I think one thing I definitely picked up from, from what you just said is there is a lot of increased testing and monitoring required for category three compounds. And unfortunately, we're in the age of medication shortages and having to utilize alternative products. So what practical advice can you give for facilities that would like to um, do category three compounding and fulfill all these testing requirements of the chapter? Absolutely. And I would start with to say, does it make sense for our organization? And do we need those longer beyond use dates? That would be the first place that I, I would look at and to consider, right? Because there's a lot of requirements. Those requirements have, you know, capital and operational costs associated with those. So it needs to make sense for your organization, right? Also to know is that there are some other options to consider if you want extended beyond use states. One of the things we didn't talk about is the use of USP compounded monographs. So if you're making a certain preparation and there's a USP compounded monograph that has 
longer beyond use date, let's say, you know, 60 days room temperature, you can actually do that within the context of the environment of a category two, right? Because these USP monographs actually supersede these chapters. Now, with that being said, there is specific testing that needs to be performed with USP monographs, and those are outlined in those individual monographs. So certainly look there next and say, you know, is the preparations we want to be extended? Is there a monograph that's available and can we follow that? Because if that's the case, you would not need to, you know, go through all of the category three um, elements that are there. Something else to consider if you want those beyond use states and either the requirements are too much for your organization or you don't have the facilities, is there certainly outsourcing, you know, as an operational decision as well? And so really if starting to look at the products that you're interested in, look at the beyond use states that you desire and kind of figure out does category three make sense? Um, for our organization, what would it take for us to get there? So those are some things that I would be thinking about as you go through those uh, conversations. Thank you, Kevin. I, th- I think that's great. I think that provides some good information for some practical information for facilities. So unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. I want to thank Kevin, Terry, and Jim for joining us to discuss the updated assignment of BUD based on newly created categories and how these apply to current practice. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources, including the updated Compounding Resource Center. ASHP also has a new Connect community on compounding, which is an online forum where members are encouraged to ask and answer questions related to sterile and non-sterile compounding and also hazardous drug safety. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thank you for listening to ASHP official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP official.